There is, there has been in my life, but a handful of individuals who I can say honestly have profoundly impacted me and shaped my understanding of the scriptures. Just a handful. And the majority of that handful I never met. That they have influenced me, that they have shaped me, that they have profoundly changed me through what they have written. But there are a couple of individuals whom in God's good providence we are contemporaries and I have had the privilege of meeting and forming a friendship with. And the man who is to take the pulpit for me this morning is one such man. Dr. Doug Bookman, and you've heard me say this before, is in my opinion one of the finest New Testament scholars and teachers in America today. And that you will have an opportunity to hear this morning. So it is with a heart overflowing with thanksgiving and joy that he took the time out of his busy schedule to fly all the way across the country to be here with us for the weekend and to turn around and fly all the way back and in at midnight tonight so that he can be at work first thing tomorrow. Dr. Bookman, come and open the word of God with us. Well, how gracious. And it is uh, an absolute delight. I thank you for the invitation. I just love being here at Foothill Bible. I've got a bit of a history here uh, thanks to uh, my relationship with David and, and the church. So Thank you so much, and thank you for arranging, rearranging the service this morning. I normally, I perhaps would have been happy to, uh, uh, hold on here, I would have been happy to tarry and, and uh, uh, but, but I, we have a big day at the seminary tomorrow. I'm in charge of recruiting, and, and so I have to be there, but let me leave that alone. Folks, we have uh, been making our way, now I can't remember what I have here. I don't have it. That's all right. We've been making our way through uh, what is called the Passion Week of Jesus, and uh, I don't think there could be a more noble or worthy study than uh, to study this most remarkable, most awful, and most blessed week in human history. Oh, yeah, I can put that down. I'll never learn. Uh, Because uh, it's the most awful week because the most awful miscarriage of justice was visited upon the most perfect uh, uh, Son of God. But it's the most blessed because by reason of what happened that week, uh, God's holiness was propitiated, covered, and uh, man's sin was paid for as we claim it and so on. So uh, we have been studying the Passion Week. By the way, I don't think I mentioned this over the weekend, but it's interesting to ask why we call it. In in, in the English-speaking world, we refer to the events surrounding the death and burial and resurrection of our Savior as his Passion Week. And I think it probably comes from uh, the King James translation. Uh, how many of you, uh, you know, <laughs> read the King James and are man enough to admit it, I like to say, but uh, I was reared on it and can't get it out of my head. But uh, I'm not trying. But, but the point is that Luke, in his, uh, the way, in, in, in Acts chapter 1, uh, the way the King James translated Dr. Luke's introduction to the, passage, to the, to the, to the second volume of his work, where he says, that Jesus showed himself alive after his passion. And it's a word that means a pouring out of, 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 uh, uh, of, of suffering and, and emotional uh, trauma and so on. 
So Jesus showed himself alive after his passion. And that's what we want to talk about this morning, uh, is the resurrection. There's so much to be said, and we'll only cover it very briefly. But let me just rehearse the events of the week. And uh, I don't have my PowerPoint up. I think I'm just going to leave it alone. But but uh, I, I used an outline, and I'm going to go back to that outline to refresh those of you who were here and introduce it to the others. I, I like to think of the Passion Week, and as I say, it's an, uh, the Passion Week, it's an eight-day week. It goes from Sunday to Sunday, praise God. And uh, on the first Sunday, we think of it as Palm Sunday, which is on our Christian calendar next Sunday. So it's appropriate that we be thinking about this at these days of the year. When in the world is it not appropriate to be thinking about this? But certainly... Our minds are a bit more focused at, uh, at this season of the year. But I like to think of Palm Sunday as a day of messianic presentation. I use this throughout the weekend, but in this sense that on Palm Sunday, on March uh, uh, 29th, March 29th of 33 AD, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem. Now he had alerted the city very cleverly, very carefully to his coming. And he excited the city so that when, in fact, he did arrive, and he even alerted them as to the time of his arrival, but when he did ride into the city, this whole city erupted in happy welcome of Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. And, uh, uh, well, I asked the question, given Sunday, why Friday? That is, given the fact that the city welcomed him on Sunday with such enthusiasm, why on Friday is that same city crying out, crucify him, will not have this man to reign over us. And I think the answer to that question, given Sunday, why Friday, is Monday and Tuesday. Because on Monday, Jesus went back into the city. He was staying in Bethany where he was, he was safe. He, had, he was a fugitive by this time. He had to be so circumspect and so clever. But he, he made his way back into the city with the crowds. And on Monday morning, for the second time in his ministry, he cleansed the temple in Jerusalem. He drove the money changers and the merchants off of the temple, and now he takes possession of it for two days. And in a fashion more dramatic and more deliberate than ever else in his ministry, he plays the role of Messiah. He, he, the Messiah, every Jewish person understands, is going to rule from the temple, and Jesus took control of the temple for those two days. But at the end of those two remarkably exciting days, as he left the temple for the last time, he pronounced a series of woes upon the Pharisees and the scribes. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You compass land and sea to make one proselyte, and when you've won him to yourself, he is twofold more the child of hell than he was before. And so he pronounces these scathing, withering curses and woes upon the Pharisees and the scribes. Not upon the Sadducees, but on the scribes and Pharisees. And we tried to explain in the course of the weekend that the reason was that the Pharisees taught a pseudo-gospel of pleasing God by keeping the law, gaining entrance into the kingdom by your allegiance to the law of Moses. And, and, and that was a lie. God never intended the law to be that. But uh, that was the Pharisaic gospel. And the Pharisees were so widely revered by the people that Jesus could drive that people, that nation, that city to a decision. Or to say it another way, he could test the willingness of the city to bow the knee to him. On Sunday, it seemed like they were willing to follow him. Now he says, all right, you don't take me on your terms, you take me on my terms, and you cannot cling to Pharisaic self-righteousness and trust in me as your only hope, so you make a choice. That was on Tuesday. 
I think the city had a few days to make that choice, to deliberate that choice, and they're going to announce their verdict on Friday. Meanwhile, on Tuesday night, Judas sneaks off to the Sanhedrinists, the Jewish leaders, and makes a bargain to help them capture him in the absence of the multitude, explicitly, Luke 22, 6. And now, Wednesday, I think, is a quiet day, Thursday, so I'm calling Monday and Tuesday days of messianic proclamation. Sunday, day of messianic preparation, uh, presentation, he offers himself as Messiah. Seems like they're willing to accept him. Monday and Tuesday, he makes the truth concerning himself. He proclaims the truth. He makes it so undeniably inescapably clear, uh, inescapably clear that they have to make a choice, and they're going to ponder that decision for a few days. Wednesday is silent in the record. Thursday, I like to think of as a day of messianic preparation on two counts. First of all, in the afternoon, Jesus dispatches Peter and John to prepare a place where they could keep the Passover. They meet there. They keep the Passover. Uh, in the midst of the Passover meal, Jesus says, the betrayer is with me at the table. There are a great deal of conversation, very meaningful. But finally, Judas gets up and goes off to fetch the soldiers and the Sanhedrinists to arrest Jesus. Jesus begins to teach. John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, uh, in my Father's house, and so on. All of that teaching. Now, it's, at this, it's in this way that I think it's, it's apt to think of Thursday as a day of messianic preparation, because by reason of his teaching, first of all, in the upper room, let not your heart be troubled. And then he leaves suddenly because he knows Judas is on his way and he wants some extra time. And so now Jesus leaves the upper room and he leads his disciples across the darkened city. It's by now, it's close to midnight. And he takes them out of the city across the Cadron Valley to a private garden. When you think of a garden in the Bible, all right, it's almost always a, an agricultural installation, all right? It's a, it's a hobby farm. It's a, I won't go any further, but, but the Garden of Gethsemane was not some rose garden. It was a working olive industry. But it was owned by somebody who loved Jesus and had given him access to it. And so oftentimes it features a cave. When you go to Jerusalem, make your guide take you down to the cave. That's the really meaningful spot because on this Garden of Gethsemane on the hill on the, on, on, on the Mount of Olives, there was a garden with olive trees, and that was, but down on the side there was a cave, and in that cave is a first century olive press. And by the way, Gethsemane means the place of the olive press. But, so Jesus takes his disciples to Gethsemane, and there, as you know, he pours his heart out. Oh, and all along the way, he's teaching. John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. John 16, it's expedient for you that I go away. John 17, that marvelous prayer. All of that happened between the upper room making his way down to Gethsemane. Now he comes to Gethsemane. He tells the disciples, my soul is heavy in me unto death. Please pray for me. And Jesus goes in, and uh, we have that gut-wrenching season of prayer as the son pours his heart out to the father and begs him in order to help us, I believe, understand the depth of suffering that Jesus was about to endure. Three times he cries out, let this cup pass from me, but he never stops there. Nonetheless, not my will, but thine be done. And now angels come to assist Jesus, and they perhaps help him as he staggers out of the garden and as he comes out of the garden, by now it's after midnight, Thursday, Friday morning, here comes Judas and the soldiers, and they, John 18 says that Judas knew the place, Gethsemane, because they often stayed there. So now Judas has figured out that must be where Jesus is, and he brings the soldiers and the Sanhedrinists 
and Jesus is arrested in the garden in the in the valley of the Kidron, just outside the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, and now his disciples desert him as he had predicted, as he had foretold, and he is brought back up onto the western hill, and there he is. There is a series of hearings before the Jewish leadership. And finally, Jesus acknowledges that he is the Christ, and they think, all right, he's claimed to be the king. We can take him to Pilate and make the case that he's a seditionist. So he's brought to Pilate, and you have that amazing extended. Uh, uh, the record is quite clear and quite complete of Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate, the prefect. Pilate is determined to let him go, according to Peter in Acts 3. But uh, finally, Pilate acquiesces and turns Jesus over to be crucified. By now, it's right about 6 o'clock in the morning. John 19, 14 says that, that when Jesus was turned over by Pilate, it was about the sixth hour, which by Roman reckoning is about 6 o'clock in the morning. So, uh, and so Sunday, a day of messianic presentation, he offers himself as Messiah. Monday and Tuesday, days of messianic proclamation, he makes the truth concerning himself so clear that he drives the people to a decision. Are they really willing to follow him? Wednesday silent, Thursday afternoon, a time of messianic preparation as Jesus in the upper room and then beyond. Oh, by the way, he also, of course, introduces the very important Lord's Supper after Judas has departed. So in so many ways, which is, by the way, the seal of our new covenant blessings, but, after, but, but then all that teaching, and then he goes to the garden, and there he prepares his own soul spirit. And we made much of the fact, this, the biblical reality this weekend, that, that by reason of his very genuine incarnation, he, he took upon himself genuine unfallen human nature. He didn't surrender or abandon in any sense any element of divinity, but he did in some inscrutable sense take to himself genuine humanity, and thus he was as dependent upon he had, I like to say he had no more spiritual resources than you and I. And so Jesus steeled his soul spirit for the terror which he was about to endure with that season of prayer before his father in, in the garden. And now he is arrested. He is brought to, first of all, the Jewish leadership. They take him to Pilate. Pilate turns him over to be crucified. And so now he is hung on a cross, and by 9 o'clock he's on a cross, and he hangs there three hours of light, and he speaks three times, then the sun goes dark as God just pulls a, I like to say, a curtain of grayness across this awful scene. But it's not so dark, though. He wants us to see what's going on. But he just accentuates the wrongness of all that is happening in terms of moral realities, not in terms of God's love and purpose, but in terms of the moral universe. This is, this is wrong. And so you have this curtain of grayness. And he hangs there for three hours, and at the end of that time, he cries out, My God, my God, which, why hast thou forsaken me? And let me just say this. I said it during the weekend, but it is so important for us to think biblically about this issue of death. You know, some people, by the way, have, have, some people have staggered at the idea that the God-man could die. And out of that has come the notion, and quite frankly, if I'm stepping on your toe, why well, enjoy it, because you've got it coming, but... Because there are those who have argued that it was only the human Jesus that died and not the divine Jesus. Well, that's a total fabrication. It flies in the face of so many important theological realities. And it assumes that there are really two persons, that one can die and the other not. There's one Jesus for heaven. He's the God-man. Now, the point is that the problem we're having there is that we're thinking of death as the cessation of 
being, which is kind of an intuitive modern Western idea, but it knows nothing. The Bible knows nothing about that. So you have in the Bible the most importantly spiritual death, what is often called spiritual death. But the first time we encounter death in the Bible is in the Genesis 3, and God says, don't eat of that tree. In the day you eat it, you will die. He ate it, and he lived physically for 938 years. But he died the day he ate it, right? Because he had known what it was to walk in the cool of the day, to enjoy perfect fellowship with the God who had created him, and the God who, by the way, unless you know that kind of fellowship, life will never mean anything. There can be no measure of real soul satisfaction until you are rightly related to and enjoy the God who who created you for specifically that purpose. And so now you have Adam who had known that enjoyment, but now he is alienated from God. He's angry with God. That's spiritual death, to be alienated from God, to be disfellowshipped by God. Now, to be sure, there is a physical dynamic as well, and that's the separation of the soul, spirit, from the body. It's not the cessation even there from existence. It's just to be separated. But, but, but the point is, What happened on the cross, and the reason Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is because in some inscrutable sense, but it has to do with this blessed reality that God exists from eternity by nature in in, in plurality, if you don't mind, this triune Godhead. So there is this, the the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and there is this this immeasurable, unimaginable, uh, infinite measure of oneness and love and compassion between the persons of the Trinity. And whatever that is, in some way that I don't know that will fully plumb throughout eternity, but in some inscrutable sense, what the Bible teaches is that the Son was disfellowshipped by the Father. And, and there was a terror in that, and a, a, that, that, that it was sufficient to cover God's holiness in his, in his economics. And that's the point. And I like to say that it was just as horrible for the Father as it was for the Son. But for those three hours, but then... Uh, Jesus knows what it is to be judicially, listen, the wages of sin is death. And, 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 and I like to say that God never had to deliberate that. He didn't have a series of choices and he chose death. By reason of who he is, the wages of sin must be alienation. And Jesus suffered that for those three hours. Now, God is a very deliberate, patient effective pedagogue. And what happened at the cross, we can understand to the degree that we can understand. And I I think it's a significant and and God-intended degree. But it's because God has so patiently driven home to the human race and recorded in the Holy Scriptures all throughout time this reality that, that the wages of sin must be death. God must alienate himself from the one who rebels against him. But that same God will offer a substitute who can die the death. You know, this was so powerfully illustrated in the temple. I'm as glad as anybody in the room that the law is behind us, okay? Praise God. Uh, But there was, there were Teachments. There was a uh, pedagogy. There was a teaching that was going on in that temple system that I could almost wish that we would experience. Just think about what it meant. Think about what God is teaching you from Adam on. By the way, after Adam sinned, God made a promise. 
And then he gave them animal coverings to cover him. Now here's an insight. Those animals did not zip off those skins, right? What do you got there? The shed blood of an innocent victim of God's provision to cover the sinfulness of a sinning party. That's, that's the fundamental idea. Now all throughout the Old Testament, that's fleshed out. We see it in greater, greater detail. And so now you have these sacrifices. And just try to imagine what it would be like to, okay, you, 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 let, let's take Passover, because I think there is sin involved. You come with your Passover lamb. It's interesting that the, the, Passover, you, the, the Passover lamb had to be presented to the priests and, 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 and proclaimed, Levitically accepted. It had to be done by the 10th of Nisan. And then the Bible is explicit. The lamb had to be with you. You couldn't put him out to pasture. The idea seems to be you had to keep him almost like a pet. So for four days, it could be more, but at least four days, that lamb had to be with you. So that lamb gets to trust you, gets to know you. And so now comes the day of Passover slaying. So you take that lamb, and maybe you throw him over your shoulders, as they often did. Lambs are skittish. It's, impo- it's, almost, it's very difficult to imagine the chaos that, that, that there would have been at the temple at Passover season. And so now this little lamb, he's learned to trust you, and you can feel the warmth of his body and his little heart beating hard against your shoulder. But now you're going to take him in, and you're going to, you're going to get in, in line with one of the priests. Can I come down there for just a second? And, uh, you know, you're going to stand there, and, and you probably have brought the family dagger, which you've honed very carefully, a little, little ceremonial sword. And you're going to hand that to the priest. And the Bible says that, that, that when, when, when you offered a sacrifice of this sort, you had to lay your hands on him. Now, when we think of laying our hands, just kind of touch it. It means rest all of your weight. So here's your position. Here's this little lamb. He's been with you those four days. Now, you rest, whoop, you rest your weight on him. And while you're in that position, the priest takes that sword, and with one very humane and studied stroke, he slits the throat of that animal. One of the things that strikes me about the temple system is that it was designed to absolutely assault your physical senses. It was overwhelming. So now you think, you're leaning on that lamb. You're going to smell that blood as it as it, it evacuates. You're going to listen to the death rattle in his throat. You're going to watch as he stumbles and, and his, his eyes roll back and so on. And because you're leaning on him as he falls, you're going to stumble. You have to get up and brush yourself off. And in just a little while, you're going to go home and you're going to take that meat and you're going to eat it. Every physical sense is being assaulted here. Why? What's going on there? Why would God demand that of you? Because he wants to teach you something. And as that happens, how could you escape the understanding that, number one, there is a God in heaven who cannot, will not tolerate sin. And the wages of sin must be death. But that same God is so gracious that he will, in fact, provide an innocent victim who can die the death. That's what's going on. That's why you're leaning your weight on him. He's dying the death you deserve to die. 
Now, God has been pounding that into the minds and soul spirits of the human race for all these hundreds of years. Now you take that to the cross. Behold the Lamb of God. And we can understand that this is what all of that anticipated. You know, <laughs> I like to say that you got all those lambs in the Old Testament. And now John the Baptist, as Jesus emerges from the wilderness, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I like to say, I don't know for sure if angels got foreheads, but if they do, I think every one of them went, Aha! I got it! That was just a picture. Look what God has done. That's what's happening as Jesus dies on the cross. Now, his body is taken down after proof of death. I want to come back to that in just a moment. I've got to be quick. And he is laid in a tomb. Now, listen, I've got to give you a little short theological lesson here. I adumbrated this or just mentioned it briefly over the week, but I want to make sure you understand this. In the Bible, throughout the Bible, miracles are about one thing. That is, there's one purpose. There are a lot of effects, but one purpose for miracles. This is, this is going to rock your boat just a little bit. And that is, miracles are God's way to prove true a man's claim to be a divine messenger. I'm going to say it again. Miracles are about proving true a man's claim to be a divine messenger. Now, I always say that if you're going to have this conversation intelligently, you've got to stop for a minute and talk about the word miracles because the word miracle, everything's a miracle, you know. And so and uh, we've got to get past the, you know, I was going to the doctor and I was late and I had to get there. There's never, right in front there was a parking spot. It was a miracle. It wasn't a miracle, okay? Now, now I know you're going to keep talking that way. Help yourself. Although I'd like to just bookman to be sitting on your ear, on your shoulder, whispering in your ear when it happens. But, but honest to goodness, this is the illustration I've used for years. I'm going to go back to it. I've used it here. But you're driving down the the, the street, you know, and a car comes, runs a red light. And you see him coming right at you, and you don't know what you're going to do. And you slam on the brakes, and you spin the wheel, and you whisper a prayer, and you think I'm toast, and somehow he misses you. So you pull over to the side of the road, and you say, "Thank you, Father." That was a miracle. Well, I always say, I'm not saying you shouldn't thank God, and I'm not saying maybe your guardian angel didn't have to go lay down somewhere for a few minutes, if you know what I'm saying. But here's the point. You're going down the road. guy runs a red light, comes right at you. Your car levitates 30 feet in the air. The other car passes nicely underneath. Your car comes gently back to the earth. Now you're getting close to a miracle. You see what I'm saying to you? I, I don't think you got one yet because you can't have a miracle without a miracle worker. But, but you don't have a miracle unless you have, and I, I think of predictive prophecy, which is, comes to pass as chronological miracle, okay? So I'll group that under this. But you have the interruption of the laws of nature. Why? Because, look, God has always revealed himself through men. Now, you have the completed Bible, so you don't have to struggle with this. But there were generations to whom those men, prophets in the Old Testament, apostles came. How do you know? Were there false prophets in the Old Testament? Ooh. Were there false apostles? You bet. How are you going to tell? How is God going to communicate to you that this man is truly speaking for God? The answer is miracle. Now, i got to be quick to say, and I don't have time to develop this, but I, I would argue that miracle, including predictive prophecy, is the one, now hear me on this, positive qualifier. In other words, you don't listen to a man unless he does miracles. You don't trust him as a, and I'm talking about bringing new revelation, writing books of the Bible, okay? You don't trust somebody as a, as a, as a spokesman for God in that sense 
unless he vindicates it with miracle. Uh, that's the one positive qualifier. Now, let me just say, because many of you are saying, wait a minute, Antichrist is going to do miracles, right? What are we? Well, there are in the Bible a number of negative disqualifiers, and such as if you preach anything different than what was preached before. And the negative disqualifier always trumps the qualifier. Does that make sense to you? It's Deuteronomy 13. Go home, read Deuteronomy 13. It's explicit there. So my point is this, that miracle is, and you know where this starts, is the, is the, uh, is the, uh, the, the uh, burning bush. Remember Moses asks two questions at the burning bush. Number one, we all think about, who shall I say as I mean, The second question is, why should they believe me? Why should those people, and what did God say? I always say, did he say, alliterate your points or stomp your feet? <laughs> What's that in your hand? Throw it down, pick it up. Put your hand in, draw it out. I think very possibly if you gave Moses any hard time, he'd say, see that? Okay, Moses, you know. So, you know, now, now the point of his hand becoming leprous and then healed again, the point of his, his, his staff becoming a serpent and then a staff once again, I don't know that there's any grand homiletical point. It's just that only God can do that. And that's how God again and again, these are the signs of an apostle. Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent from God because no man does these miracles that you're doing except God be with him. Peter said in Acts, 20, Acts 2 at Pentecost, he said, men of Israel, hear this, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by the signs, wonders, and miracles which you did in your midst. So now, where am I taking you with that? The fact is that Jesus made the most audacious claims a man can make. First of all, he claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah deliverer who was first promised back there in Genesis 3 as the seed of woman who would deliver you from the curse of sin. And then he made the promise stunningly enough to be God come in the flesh. And in the, in the narrative, we saw this yesterday, in the narrative of, of Jesus' trial before Pilate, after the, his accusers had exhausted every possibility that they were going to persuade Pilate to, 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 to crucify Jesus as a seditionist, they resorted to this, John 19, 7. Well, if you won't crucify him as it were as a seditionist, they said this, we have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God, John 19, 7. Now, that is exactly what Jesus claimed. Why should we believe it? Well, the way God proves true a man's claim to be a divine messenger is miracle. The greatest miracle of all human history is when Jesus came alive out of the grave after three days. And Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was declared. And it's the Greek word horizo. And it's our word horizon. Now I'm present. It means, it just means to to put in front of you so you can't miss it. But I like to think of it as the message was writ across the horizon from earth to sky, from east to west. It was put on display so that nobody can miss this. Jesus was declared. What did he claim? He claimed to be the Son of God, God, very God. Why did they crucify him? We have a law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Now, Paul says he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus, which you will celebrate two weeks from now in a special way, is God's unmistakable, undeniable, divine seal 
on everything Jesus ever claimed concerning who he was and what he had come to do. Now, very quickly, I want to take you to three passages. And uh, I'll, just, I'll just cite them for you. There are three passages in John where Jesus speaks of being lifted up. And I want to relate this to what we're talking about here, to the, to the resurrection. And it's fascinating to me, so I'm going to be done uh, with this, we'll be done. But in John 3, Jesus says, I think it's verse 16, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Do you remember that passage? As Moses lifted up. Now, now let me just ask you, and don't, just, just in your mind, how do you understand that? What does he mean, lifted up? Well, there are various ideas, but I don't think we have to wonder. In John chapter 8, and I think it's verse 28, Jesus, and this is at the Feast of Tabernacles, so it's about six months before Jesus dies, and he is in open debate and contest with the Pharisees who are very angry with him. And Jesus says, and they are insisting that he's not speaking for God, that he's only speaking for himself. And he says, when I am lifted up, then you'll know that I speak for the Father. So again, you have this reference to being lifted up. Now, John chapter 12, and I think I will take you to this one. I can do it easily. In John chapter 12, uh, and about verse uh, 20, uh, no, it's going to be in the 30s. John 12, oh, I, I opened the chapter up, so I'll just go down to it. John 12, and verse... Uh, 31, 32, 32, John 12. And this is the midst of the, con- the, 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 the conversation. We, we talked about this yesterday when Jesus, the Greeks came and Jesus said, my soul is troubled and so on after the promise from the Father had come. But then he says in verse 31, notice it here. He says, uh, now, no, verse 32 is one. Well, I'll start with verse 31. Sorry about this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And then he says this. I, if I am lifted up, will draw all peoples to myself. Now let's, recall, or let's just rehearse real quickly. In John uh, 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In John chapter 8, listen, when I am lifted up, you will know that I am speaking for the Father. And now he says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. But what I want you to see, and the reason I have it open, is because of John's unspeakably helpful comment in verse 33. This he said signifying by what death, and the word is tupos, the type, by what death he would die. Now, curiously, watch this, I bet I can go there right from here. Uh, in John 18, there it is, I think I figured out, oh, come on, help me here. In John 18, Jesus, now this is the middle of the trial narrative. It's Friday morning, sometime uh, before sunup, before the day is uh, bright. And uh, uh, the Sanhedrinists bring Jesus, Caiaphas, uh, brings Jesus to Pilate. When, when he comes, Pilate says, what's the charge? And the Sanhedrinists say, come on, if he weren't a malefactor, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Just crucify him, for heaven's sakes. And Pilate says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he said, they say, Pilate says to the Jewish leadership, you go try him yourself. And the Jewish leaders say, uh, where am I here? 
Uh, I should have found it. All right, right here. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, to the Jewish leaders, you take him and judge him according to your law. And, and the Jewish leaders said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone into death. Now, this is what I want you to see. I, I, I stumbled, and so I lost your, the train of thought. But uh, I'm going to say it one more time. John 3, even as the, uh, Moses lifted up the serpent, uh, uh, Jesus must be lifted up. John 8, when I am lifted up, then you will know that I speak for the Father. John 12, I, if I be lifted up, will draw him into myself. And John says, this spake he concerning the type of death he would die. And now he's brought to Pilate, and the Jews say, you know we can't put him to death. And look right here. Uh, in order, he says, all right, I'm going to read the verse. Therefore the Jews said to Pilate, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. In order that, strong statement of purpose, the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. All right, let me just draw it all together very quickly. Jesus says three times that it was imperative that he died by being lifted up. He meant crucifixion. We might have expected that Jesus, having offended the Jewish people of his, especially the leadership, would die at their hands by stoning. And they do pick up stones to stone him on several occasions. But Jesus tells us, and I think he rather contrived to make sure he would die, not by stoning at the hands of the Jews, but by crucifixion. It was an imperative that he die by being lifted up. Will you agree with me on that? That's what he's saying. It's imperative that I die, and it has to do with the type of death. Now, here's the curious question, and I'm, 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 I'm well, we know a great deal about crucifixion, and I, I am a little bit loath to dwell on it over much because uh, it's clear that as Jesus drew near the cross, it filled him with terror, but I don't want to convey the notion that it was the physical sufferings, okay? It was the awful spirituals. I've had students say to me, I've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and they seem less alarmed than Jesus. No, no, no. There's no parallel. It's not just an awful physical death. It is being separated from the Father on behalf of you and me that terrifies Jesus. But let's back up and remind ourselves that Jesus did say that it was important that he be lifted up. And he was talking about the kind of death he would die. He was talking about crucifixion. So I asked the question, why was it important from God's standpoint, imperative one might say, that Jesus die by being lifted up? Why is it that only if he is lifted up will he draw him into himself? Will men know that he is speaking for God? I think the answer is primarily has to do with, with, with an understanding of the Roman requirements with regard to crucifixion. Because you see, and I'm going to wander for just a moment, but don't lose that question. Why was it important for him to die this way? The Romans intended, they, I said yesterday, they fine-tuned crucifixion. There was a, that, 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 crucifixion as a means of death had been around for, for millennia. But they fine-tuned it very carefully. Because for the Romans, crucifixion was designed to be not primarily a means of executing a seditionist, but a means of putting down the sedition. It was a gruesome, well-orchestrated object lesson. And it was for the purpose of, of, of retarding any seditious impulse that might be percolating in, 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 in the mind of anybody else. Does that make sense to you? So therefore, they demanded that 
crucifixion be characterized in four ways. Number one, and this is not pleasant to think about, it had to be cruel. It had to be unspeakably cruel. I think it's important to factor this in. Uh, you know, uh, it was standard practice before a man was crucified to scourge him. Now, Jesus' scourging was of a different order. It's a different purpose. It doesn't fit this. But it was standard procedure to scourge a man. And the reason was it was rather a surgical scourging, and it was designed because, I'll take you the next step, the, the second demand, so the first thing, it had to be cruel. The second demand was it had to be lingering. They did not want the man to die quickly on the cross. And for that reason, normally a scourging would be rather surgical. But the point was to open up fresh wounds laterally all across the backside. Because when you are affixed to a cross and that beam is just rough timber and it's got splinters and you cannot breathe within a few minutes after you're affixed to a cross, your rib cage settles in on your breathing apparatus and you can't breathe without hoisting yourself up. There was always some sort of apparatus built into the cross so a man could hoist himself up. You couldn't sleep, you couldn't fall into a coma, you'd, you'd, you'd asphyxiate because you, had, you could not breathe without pushing yourself up. By the way, that, that's why if you wanted to hasten the victim's death, you would break his legs. He could no longer hoist himself. Now, the point is that you've got that, that splinter-ridden beam, and every time you hoist yourself up, you've got those wounds newly opened, and those splinters are going to thrust themselves in, and the victim is going to cry out in awful pain and so on. That's the point. Just know that. You know, and I don't know if this is particularly helpful, but I... I've often thought it's, it's curious. If you were to, if you were to uh, encounter a young woman, you know, you just don't know this girl, but you just met her, and you're talking with her, and as you talk, you notice she's got a nice necklace on, this little charm necklace, I guess you'd say, and hanging from the chain in that charm necklace, you notice, is a guillotine. Now, you'd think, that's kind of macabre, wouldn't you? What, what's that all about, you know? Well, it's just curious. I only say that to make this point. What's the difference between the guillotine or Dr. Guillotine, or what do you want to say, and the cross? The guillotine was designed to be swift and merciful. The cross was designed to be lingering and cruel. It is curious that we have sanitized that symbol to the degree we have. I'm not saying we're not going back. It only started in the 4th century. It was Constantine who popularized that. Early on, it was the boat or the fish. But now it's the, the Christ. I'm just saying that we've kind of sanitized it, and we ought to understand that the Romans demanded that it be horribly cruel, that it be lingering. They wanted him to last at least a day on the cross. Thirdly, that it be public. And that's why it was always just outside of a gate, because a gate is a choke point. And so you're going to have to go by there. Furthermore, the cross was just high enough that people could see over the crowd as they walked into the gate because the Romans insisted that this be on display, that you see this. But there's one other requirement that I think relates, and that is this. The Romans required that crucifixion be cruel, lingering, public, but above all things that it be absolutely publicly certifiable. That is, the man had to die on the cross and there had to be physical evidence of that death before he was brought down. And the reason is quite simple. Because the Romans would not tolerate the possibility that the rumor would get started that somehow that wretch had survived the ordeal. The sedition is over. He is 
dead. And if a man were taken down off of a cross, I've read this in a couple of places, and, and inadvertently, and the last hint of physical life was, was seen while he was on the, and then he died on the ground, all the soldiers assigned to that detail were immediately put on a cross. That's how serious they were. Now, why is that important? Only if I'm lifted up will I draw them in. Only if I'm lifted up. See, the point is stoning could be botched. Really. I mean, you, you, and, and, and we got Acts 14. We're all wondering what happened. You know, they stoned Paul, and then he got up and went into Lystra. And we said, what? Bad aim? What's going on there? I don't know. But, but, but the fact is, here it is. Crucifixion could not be botched. And here's what you need to understand. You didn't have to be there that afternoon to see the blood and, and water coming from his side to know that he died. If you lived in the Roman Empire, and if today you know anything about the Roman Empire, you know that once Jesus was affixed to a Roman cross, he was not coming down until he was dead. And the reason the resurrection has such bottomless and undeniable significance is that because we know that he truly died. And if he died, then in the greatest miracle in human history, Jesus came alive from the dead, and he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. I'm going to say it again. The way God proves a man's claim, and by the way, I shouldn't be by the way in, but I've had people say, well, Bookman, you can't say that Jesus' miracles proved his, his, his deity because Paul did miracles. See, the point is, the miracle proved true his claim to be a divine messenger. Paul didn't claim to be God. Moses didn't claim to be God. Jesus claimed to be God. And the way God proves true a man's claim to be a divine messenger is miracle. The greatest miracle in human history is Jesus walking alive from the grave and that is God putting his seal on everything Jesus claimed concerning who he was and what he had come to do. Amen? Thank you so much for the time together. Let me have a word of prayer with you. Father, we do rejoice once again in your unspeakable goodness to us. We thank you, Father, for the marvelous, inerrant, dependable record that we have in the gospel so perfectly, carefully framed so that now we can recover this marvelous, most important of all stories. And Father, as we are confronted once again by this marvelous reality that your Son, this eternal second person of a triune Godhead, took upon himself genuine, unfallen hum humanity, and he lived a life stunningly like ours. But Father, then he died a death entirely unlike ours. It was an innocent death. It was a substitutionary death. And by reason of the death that he died on our behalf, by reason of the fact that in dying that death, he satisfied your holiness. Now, Father, given the reality of the resurrection and your seal, we can have the confidence that our sins are forgiven once and for all, and we have been bought with a dear price, and we belong to you. We rejoice over it. We'd ask that you would uh, make it the more real to us. In, days, in, in, in all of our lives, and we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.